So I'm just curious to know, what would you say are some of the primary benefits? Because, you know, a lot of people who are listening, either they're in leadership positions currently or they're thinking about it. You know, they, they, mm-hmm. they're looking to potentially enter this space. And in my book, Becoming the New Boss, one of the things I talk about is that transition, some of the some of the positives, as well as some of the potential pitfalls. Would love to yeah. get your take on that. Yeah, I mean, you certainly, uh, I think, have to acquire new skill sets to move into like traditional, just like um, being a doctor or a professor, or whatever. Uh, I think understanding that you need to acquire new skill sets is daunting. Like you're like, oh, okay, I got to stay a doctor. How am I going to learn all this? But I think what you need to realize is you have to take baby steps. Just get on a committee you know, just get involved in something. And what you will find is one door opens another door, if that makes sense. And I think, you know, like if someone's in clinical medicine and say, well, I want to start my own company, where would you even begin? So you have to understand it cannot be like a light switch going off and on where, okay, I'm doing clinical medicine. Now I'm CEO of a healthcare company. There's, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 little steps in between. And if you realize that opening one door often opens another door later on. And if you, and you don't know what that door will be. So it's almost like a leap of faith where you just have to jump in the deep end and get involved. And I think that's daunting because they're like, well, how, how could just signing up for one little committee, you know, uh, and a hospital, you know, get me to become my own CEO. It doesn't, but you do that and you all of a sudden get on this committee and somebody sees you and they tell you about another committee and and then you know they see that and like well you know you might be a good person for this and and it's this idea of accepting that there be there will be other opportunities but you got to take baby steps and then eventually uh you get a bigger opportunity I'm interested in knowing what you see, you know, for me, I work with a lot of doctors that have broken out of corporate and I have doctors that have been in telehealth years and years and years prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So there was no real pivoting. You know, you really have to have almost this entrepreneurial mindset to not plan for the now, but plan for the future. And, And one of the things that I've seen you do really well is to, you know, jump on this podcasting, um, mm-hmm. social media. And I've heard, I've heard all of the feedback as you can imagine. I'm sure you have too. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a professional darling. Mm-hmm. I don't need to do social media, mm-hmm. right? How do I do a podcast? Who wants to listen to me talk about, you know, primary care or plastic mm-hmm. surgery, or whatever. So right. what, what gave you that? Um, what was it? What was it? What, you know, some people, you know, I opened my media company three years ago because I listened to Gary Vaynerchuk and that's uh-huh. the truth, right? Like I thought I I can do social media a heck of a lot better than what I see out there. Why right. wouldn't I go ahead and do that myself um, and add that um, to my business? So what was it for you? Well, I, you know, <clears throat> like I told you offline, you know, we're not doing these podcasts. We're not selling anything. We're not trying to monetize it. I, I think I've always been an educator before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I sort of got that part of me out by being on clinical faculty at medical schools. I've been on clinical faculty at three medical schools. So I've taught interns, residents, fellows, medical students, um, nursing staff, uh, respiratory therapists. I mean, I've, I've been in charge of education uh, for them, you know, for most of my career on clinical staff in med- medical schools. And then 
within our organization, I'm, I'm, you know, very involved in education and, and making sure that we have quality and the staff feels comfortable doing everything. Um, but I think, you know, the, this opportunity to do education and uh, help people and promote preventative health and wellness, promote vaccine, adult vaccinations was something that we felt really strongly about. And, you know, we're probably, even though we're local in, in Nevada, uh, you know, I really think when it comes to adult vaccinations, we are the 900 pound gorilla. I mean, there's nobody that knows more about adult vaccinations than my staff. I mean, they, uh, they are the powerhouse. I mean, truthfully, people, you know, in government sometimes come reach out to us mm. and ask for clarifications on things. We, you know, we really, because this is, and, and mind you, of course I have an amazing staff, but something powerful happens when that's the only thing you do. Yes, I agree. You, you mm-hmm. know, when you're, when you're doing, if you're in urgent care and you're doing a couple of vaccinations on the side, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the corner, you know, a few times a week, you're not a vaccine authority. That's right. When you don't do primary care, you don't do urgent care, you don't do occupational medicine, and all you do is focus on vaccinations. Mm -hmm. And you set up policies, procedures, technology, uh, and training only to do adult vaccinations, uh, you get a perspective that you can't get any other way. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that puts us in a very unique position. You know, I, I doubt there's anybody in the country that knows more about adult vaccinations than some of my clinical staff, for sure. I mean, they, they could, they could be a world authority, because mm-hmm. they're doing it, you know, you know, all day long, you know, every day of the week. And so it's a pretty kind of uh, interesting place, because we live and breathe preventative health and adult vaccination. So it puts us in a very unique perspective. There's definitely an opportunity for burnout on that end, but then also on the clinical end, right? I mean, as a physician, I'm sure you've had colleagues who, you know, or even yourself, you know, have have kind of expressed, uh, you know, concerns about burnout and thinking about like what the the industry looked like, uh, you know, maybe 40 years ago compared to what it looks like today, now, what are your thoughts about, you know, that evolution? Well, well, you know, I think because you're in the business of, you know, revenue cycle and reimbursement. So let's start with that. I mean, just just the big elephant in the room, uh, which is, you know, I think when you go and look at this from a satellite perspective, right, you know, what doctors and hospitals and people were getting reimbursed for services in 1970 versus 1980, versus 1990, versus 2000s and 2010s. And now, I mean, if you plotted all that, what somebody gets reimbursed for an office visit, for a colonoscopy, for an appendectomy, I mean, that graph is only going in one direction, okay? It's like, if you plot it over time, it's going down, even when adjusted for inflation. So 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 you're, by definition, going to make less money for that same thing four years from now than you were to, by definition. I mean, could you luck out and maybe that one procedure doesn't get hit yet? But it's just a matter of time. So you're going to make less money, okay? And here's the thing, your costs are going up. So think about this analogy. Let's say in 1970, I tried to sell you a restaurant. And I say, I want to sell you this restaurant. And here's 
what you can charge for your entrees and blah, blah, blah. But here's the rule. Every year, I'm going to force you to lower your prices or what you get for, you know, spaghetti and meatball dish. Okay. Every year, I'm going to force you to take less and your costs are going to go up. Your rent's going to go up. What you pay the staff is going to go up. Your insurance is going to go up. Would you buy that restaurant if that was the deal? Exactly. Exactly. Well, and not only that, but we're going to judge you on the quality of those meatballs. Uh, uh, And make you, oh, and and just the work we're going to get extra (laughs) work we're going to get. I didn't even get there. You you beat me to that. (laughs) So if you really And the customer satisfaction. Yes. How quickly did you get that meatball out? We're going to put all this metrics on you. And uh, by the way, this whole, uh, you know, electronic medical records, which is going to like actually increase your work tenfold. Uh, but oh, we're yes. going to make you we're going to do make you do that, too. So, yes, we get it all. But, you know, that's really what you're signing up for. You're signing who 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 gets into a business that, by definition, their reimbursements for any particular work will go down year over year. Exactly. And they're gone. so anyway. So I think. Looking at it from the the so, you know, people listening to this are like, well, so how did how did medicine survive this? Well, they survived by doing some shtick. So back in 1980, you know, your typical primary care doctor, you know, I, I, I mean, I was obviously in clinical medicine then as a kid, but back in 1980s, I mean, you know, a doctor would, you know, see 15 patients maybe a day. So, so as the years roll by, and and his office manager knocks on his door, it looks like, you know our reimbursements are going to go down 10, 20% next year. So he's like, okay, instead of seeing 15, I'll see 17 patients today. You know, what? I'll stay an extra hour, but I'll, however I do it. So they, so we spent the last 20, 30 years, doctors and healthcare just trying to get more volume for the same amount of time. Okay, so now you can, you know, primary care doctors seeing 30, 40 patients a day or hospitals seeing 30, 40 patients a day. You know, I mean, that's really, or, and then so stick number one, stick number two, let's start doing ultrasounds in the office. Let's start doing nerve conduction studies in the office. Let's start sending, selling vitamins in the office and let's start doing Botox in the office. You know, these are all, stri- this is all a response to what's going on. And so uh, I believe one of the things that, uh, that you talk about are five key ingredients to making a startup successful. And and I think a lot of us would love to hear what that's all about. Like, what has your experience been and, and what can you share with us about that topic? Yeah, so I, I kind of discussed this also on my podcast and, and as five main ones, but honestly, there's probably 30 or 40 that lessons that you can learn at the beginning of, of, of trying to uh, run an organization. But I, I would say that so you got to start with understanding that um, if you want to run an organization or start an organization, you need to acquire a certain amount of skill sets, right? Right. And I think one of the mistakes that people make is they think that they are there. They naturally have these skill sets because it was their idea. So they came up with this idea. So obviously they're the best person to run that organization uh, or they're well-liked or people like them, people are attracted to them or whatever, which are all needed to be a good leader and run an organization. 
but it's not going to be enough. You need to literally go out and get skill sets. As I always joke, you know, you wouldn't be able to land a 747 because you're a nice guy, right? You could you, you, being a nice guy is not going to allow you to go in the cockpit unless you got to get some skills, right? Right. And, and I think people think that running an organization or being a CEO are all soft skills that. If you get along with people, you're a nice guy, and people <laughs> like you, and that, that, that people admire you or trust you, that you can be a leader. And that, and by the way, you do need all those things. Right. But on top of it, uh, you need to acquire skill sets on how to be a leader, how to manage people, how to enroll people into into your vision, how to motivate, how to, uh, you know, put on, you know, press on the gas, pull off the gas. There's a whole host of strategies that if you're starting out and not just assume since it was your idea that you naturally have that skill set and you need to go out and acquire those skill sets. It's very ICU in nature by you were just saying that you're like the CEO of multiple companies. So you're not afraid to just accept responsibility and take the load on yourself, which is very ICU nature of, you know, (laughs) just uh, I'll be willing to accept anything. Right. Well, the the but when you're in the ICU, the buck stops with you. There's like yeah. nobody. There's nobody like behind you, right? So it is what it is. And yeah, uh, you know, you're seeing you know 10, 15 patients a day in the ICU. You're like, okay, I I you own everything. But yeah, I I I think that's a good point. I think uh, the I've gotten the question like, do you regret you know the clinical part? Do you wish you had just done this from the beginning? And I think you hit the nail on the head. I don't think I would have had some of this the soft skills and some of the insights without that clinical experience. So mm-hmm. I don't, th- I don't think I would, you know, be or have some of the skills that I have now without that clinical training, you know, so uh, I'm grateful for it. And um, it really does make, so it does make an impact. And I think you hit the nail on the head that you bring that with you. Today, we have a bulletproof system that helps us close up to 80% of those inbound calls. Our high converting call class will teach you how to demonstrate your authority quickly without being pushy. We believe that many businesses out there can benefit from this, and we promise to help you achieve your revenue goals by converting more of your incoming calls into actual sales. For more information, please visit our website at highconvertingcallclass.com. Stop waiting for the sales to come to you. Put your revenue into your hands. How about on the physician side? What's special about like a physician entrepreneur? What do they need to be mindful of that a regular person maybe doesn't need to be so concerned with? I think two things. I I, I think for a lot of physicians and myself included, we think on some level what we're doing is a calling from God or some higher level thing, which is true. And so I think when you then kind of say, hey, how, how would you like to also focus on this thing? on a capitalistic side or whatever, it kind of like, it's like for some people, it just doesn't sit well. So I get that. And I think, but you have to understand that theoretically you could help a lot. You could help people by seeing patients or you could help people by doing something in the healthcare field that improves the lives of people, maybe exponentially. So if you view it like they're both valid channels, I think it's easier to, you know, if you're leaning in that direction to think about. But I think the second problem with physicians is, you know, they spend, you know, 10, 15 years training for what they're doing. And then they work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. So people always think doctors are bad entrepreneurs. They are, but not for the reason you think. 
they're bad entrepreneurs because they're doing something else 80 hours a week. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'd be a bad anything if I was working 80 hours a week. And then you tell me, oh, by the way, take up gardening. I, you know, I'm probably going to be a bad gardener. So, so I think part of it is I don't, doctors get a bad rap. They're like, oh, they're all, you know, you, you know, they're bad investors. They're bad entrepreneurs. They're bad. This is, well, but because they're so committed often to their you know, main thing that anything they do is, a, is like a side gig. And so one of the advice I give, really, if you're really going to break out of that clinical mode, you yes, there may be a period where you may have to work 68 hours while the side thing gets going. But at a certain point, you're going to have to devote time and energy because, look, they got into med school. They passed organic chemistry, physics. Just, you know, they passed the MCATs or did well. They got into med school. They passed all the boards. They're not idiots. They just need to focus. And there you go. So moving on to the second question. And the second question that I have for you is, what do you think the goals of digital healthcare should be in helping both the patient as well as the provider? Yeah, I think the goal, obviously, is to reduce friction because I think you know, we've all had, you know, we've all tried to like go shopping online and certain website is more cumbersome and difficult. And, you know, we tend to skip those and people kind of give up and what have you. The, the more friction there is in a system, the, the less likely people are to use it. It doesn't mean people won't use it, but it'll just make it less likely. So I think the reducing friction and reducing roadblocks uh, where things are easy. And I think, you know, that's one of the popularities of Amazon, for example, is the fact that they can, you know, so people can so easily buy something uh, without, you know, inputting their information every time and what have you. And I think that sort of technology where uh, it's the least amount of work to get what you need to get an appointment, to get a result, to communicate, to get a prescription, what have you. Uh, and then from the provider side, yeah. So I, I just saw a study, and I did a podcast on this on my YouTube channel about um, you know the amount of time a doctor spends in front of a computer uh, in during a normal visit, and so it is sixty, seventy, eighty percent of the time as opposed to talking to the patient. So obviously, yes, okay, we gave this doctor or provider this great technology, but it really is undermining. The goal of that technology would be for the doctor to or provider to spend you know more face time, not less face time. So um, I think I think many of my colleagues would attest that digital technology has actually reduced their face time with because when you were just scribbling on a piece of paper, you could just make a couple of abbreviations, a couple of lines, blah blah blah, which I don't agree it was good. Uh, but now the flip side is you're you're given this you know Herculean task of filling out this form during the encounter. So I think we need to make life for the provider easier too and reduce friction there so they can spend more time with the patient. It, you know, medicine on some level is so fragmented. You without technology, right? You go see one doctor, repeats the same test as your last doctor. You go to the hospital, they don't know what your doctor did. And, so obviously the fragmentation is like begging for <laughs> technology, right? Uh, but the problem really is, you know, 
how technology is deployed becomes the issue. Because look, if Amazon can figure it out, right? And and they they're not like such a huge percentage GDP like healthcare is, right? But they have access to like anything. Like on your phone, you know, you could order uh, you know, a new sweater and it'll be there the next day. Uh that's not how healthcare works right, right. now. I mean, uh, I, I'm still surprised how many people walk into a doctor's office and they're given a clipboard. I mean, right. that, that's like, that screams to anybody like, um, or uh, if you try to call your doctor's offices and they say, press one for this, press two for that. Really? And that's, that's really what it is. Uh, so obviously we have room. Room but the problem grow. is, I think, yeah, we have room to grow, but a lot of room to grow. Could you help me understand a little bit about what your process is, how your mind works, please? In terms of our business side or entrepreneurship side, I, I think we our, our, our strategy is try to come out and provide products and services that don't just move the needle a little bit, but actually make a dramatic impact and leverage technology as much as you can so you have a real likelihood of success because the more you can leverage technology to impact people's lives uh especially in healthcare uh the 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 results are exponential how many people you can impact so it's not simply you put in this kind of work and and like in clinical medicine you see one patient at a time which is good but uh if you want to maybe impact thousands or hundreds of thousands of people there are opportunities out there uh, if you're willing to try to solve these problems, leverage technology, and think how how your your system can have the most dramatic impact on the most people.